It's something for nothing. The Rush Fan Cast. Jerry and Steve with you as always. Jer? Yes. We're about 11 days into 2021. How is your new year going? Well, it's going great so far. Yeah? No problems? No problems. Yeah. 11, about 11 days in. We're holding steady. We're holding steady, Steve. Nice, nice. You can find us on Twitter at RushFanCast. Instagram, we are the RushCast. Email Jerry, therushcast at gmail.com. Let him know what you're thinking of 2021 so far. And the bass intro, as always, done by our good pal Lex. And Jerry, I thought we'd start off today by talking about Neil Peart, because this past Thursday was the first anniversary of his death. And I don't know about you, but it hasn't gotten any easier for me dealing with it. No. Not for me either. I think it might have something to do with the fact that we're exposed to people who are, uh, you know, emailing us and contacting us still yeah. about our episode that we did last year. People who are, you know, just getting to it, mm-hmm. new listeners and stuff like that. They, they email all the time and, I don't know, it's just always on my mind. Yeah. And also for me, when I'm listening to the albums, because right now I'm listening to Snakes and Arrows, we're going to be doing that coming up soon. Mm-hmm. And just listening to that again after Neil's death, it just has a completely different meaning for me now. Yeah, I know. It's really tough. It is tough. It really is. So a couple of weeks ago, we had Alexander Helene on, the author who did the book Dreamers and Misfits. Yep. And he asked why we were so deeply affected by Neil's passing. So I I posted that on Twitter as just kind of a question uh, that we're going to be answering on the podcast. And we got a lot of responses from fans. So I thought I'd read a couple of them considering it's a a year on since Neil passed. Yeah. Good idea. So rusty at suit again on Twitter, rush has an immense impact in my life. After following them, listening to their music for over 30 years, they almost feel like they're a part of your family. And when Neil passed away, it almost felt like part of me was taken away. Still hard to believe he's gone. Yeah. I agree wholeheartedly with that. James at Jay Gilgannon on Twitter. I still find it difficult to think that he is gone. I think it's because no one other than anyone close to Neil knew he was terminally ill. It was so unexpected. You never expect anyone you greatly admire to pass the way Neil did. Our heroes are not meant to die. Yeah. I wonder if that it has something to do with it. The fact that it we only knew after the fact. Yeah. We didn't get some kind of sadness or ability to grapple with it before it happened. Yeah. We didn't have time to prepare for it. Right. I wonder if that has something to do with it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Missing Buckmas at MST3K man on Twitter. We're MST3K fans. We are. He says, simple. It's the same as if you had a relative who you never met, but they sent you letters and cards and small gifts that help you get out of some of the hardest times of your life. When they die, you feel like you lost something because of the influence they were on you. I like that. Yeah. I like, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good analogy. It's a pretty good analogy. Yeah. Aaron Ritter at Aaron Ritter on Twitter. I didn't know him, but listening to the words he wrote, it always felt like he knew me. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I like that. And uh, finally, Scott Bridgeforth at Scott Bridgeforth on Twitter. There are no words. In a very real sense, there was a truth and intimacy that was shared that made the relationship with Neil very personal and heartfelt. Not one week passes that I don't well up at his passing to find the best of humanity. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So true. So true. Yeah. It's, yeah. I don't know what to say. I mean, I, after he passed away, you know, the glial, 
last film, the foundation started a, a research award mm-hmm. in his name, and you could donate $21.12. You know, that was their way of getting people to donate. Right. And when you first could donate, they would send you a five by seven picture of Neil behind his kit. And so I got one, and I have it hanging up, you know, in my basement next oh, to all nice. my other rush stuff. So I see it every day. So I'm constantly reminded. Yeah, I've got the same picture. I haven't hung it up yet, but I plan on doing it. So I have a terrible segue. You're always happy about my segues. This is a terrible segue. Okay. Uh, so we had Alexander Helene on, I mentioned, and the Twitter poll today, he mentioned in his book, Is Rush a Nerd Band? So I asked the people on Twitter if they consider themselves a nerd. Mm, okay. So here are the choices. Yes, I'm a total nerd. I'm somewhat nerdy. No, I'm not a nerd at all. Or what is a nerd? (laughs) (laughs) So, so what do you think the winner of that poll was, Jer? Oh, I don't know. You know, when people have to define themselves, it's it's never really a truthful answer. Um, I'm going to say nerd. Everyone said they were, most people said that they were a full on nerd. No, actually most people said they were somewhat nerdy. Oh, okay. I think people probably have a tough time admitting that they're a total nerd, if in fact they are. You know, the way nerd is just thrown around, <laughs> it's there, there are no, there are very, very few actual hardcore nerds anymore. Well, I found it interesting that 24% of our respondents said, yes, they are a total nerd. Oh, see, there you go. I remember once uh, when the, the MCU movies were becoming big, someone at work was just like, oh, I'm a total marvel nerd and being kind of a marvel nerd myself i was just like what do you mean she's like oh i just love that captain america movie i'm like "Mm, i guess you call you like a really popular movie so you're a nerd okay that makes sense so anyway i'm somewhat nerdy came in first at 51 percent i'm a total nerd was 24 percent no i'm not a nerd at all came in at 20 percent and six percent asked what is a nerd oh come on (laughs) They're just being difficult. You know, they could at least look it up. <laughs> what is a nerd? Well, I, I, I gave that choice just as a goof anyway. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I figured people would respond that way or, or say, well, hey, what, what's a nerd? I don't know what that is. So I figured I'd give that as a choice. Those are the nerdiest ones of all. Exactly, exactly. So last week, Jar, we talked about covers. We did. On something for nothing. It was my idea. It was your you idea. Said, like four or five times. I think it came out great. Look, I didn't say it was your idea to try and blame you if it didn't turn out well. I just said it was your idea to give you credit. That's all. Oh, th- thank you. Because I thought it was a great idea. Oh, thank you. I and one it. of the people we featured with our covers was Jacob Moon. Yeah. And after we recorded that, we thought to ourselves, we should really have this guy on. He's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, we should have him on. Right. Let's have Jacob Moon on. Right. So, so I, I emailed him and he said, yeah, that was that. It's amazing. He's a terrific singer-songwriter. From Hamilton, Ontario, Jacob Moon, welcome to the Rush Fancast. Oh, shucks. Oh, shucks. Thanks, guys. Uh, it's great to be with you and great to talk to some fellow uh, humans outside of my bubble. That's always fun. Yeah. Why don't we start by asking you, Jacob, what your Rush origin story is? When did you first hear Rush and how did you become a fan? It was high school for sure. Uh, some dudes that I knew were really into Rush. I had a friend of mine who was in a, uh, he's in a heavy metal rock band at age like 14 or 15. We knew he was a great drummer because he could play Rush. He could actually play Neil Peart stuff and he would do so at the the talent shows at at high school. 
And so I got to hanging out with him and hanging out in his basement. And I would try to kind of strum along on songs like Closer to the Heart and stuff like that because I knew he knew those tunes just to see him go crazy on the drums. You know what I mean? That was this, the only reason I was playing those songs was just so I could watch him go play paradiddles all over you know, his massive peart-sized drum kit. And then I kind of started, as time went on, just through osmosis, just started picking up all of the uh, great lyrics and melodies and arrangements and time signatures and all the ways in which it puts a young mind through a gauntlet of <laughs> mathematical challenges just to even understand what's going on in their music. It was intriguing to me. It was like a puzzle almost, you know, it's kind of putting it together. So, so that's kind of how I, how I approached Rush in the beginning. And then uh, over time, just grew a great fondness for all of their certainly all of their hits, you know what I mean? And I mean, there are people who know them in an encyclopedic way that I don't, but I was definitely, anytime they had, you know, an album full of great songs, I was there for it. And so I was a songwriter, as a singer songwriter myself, I'm always looking for the song and what's great about the song. And um, I also have an appetite for, <laughs> for long, um, you know, meandering, fantastical um, progressive rock opuses, uh, opuses, opi, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, they, <laughs> and they're certainly capable of that. And so, um, yeah, so I like all of it, man. So Jacob, what time in your own life did you start writing your own material and, and trying to figure out who you were as a musician? Well, those are two different things because I wrote a song called Mack Truck when I was about eight years old, <laughs> uh, about a Mack truck that mows down everything in my neighborhood, you know? all my enemies <laughs> and everything else. But then it's actually to figure out when I, who I was as an artist, that didn't come so much later. And that was maybe, you know, in my mid twenties kind of thing. I started seriously writing songs about my life, about relationships, you know, in that confessional style of my heroes, like Jackson Brown and uh, Paul Simon and James Taylor. I started writing that stuff, but always with that, um, slightly progressive bent, you know what I mean? In terms of the, uh, the adventurous harmony and promiscuous use of interesting time signatures sometimes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so it's, um, that's kind of when, that's when I got started for, you know, in earnest, just making independent records as I've always done here in, here in Canada. Now we just passed the first anniversary of Neil Peart's death, Jacob. How did Neil inspire you to create your own music? You know, I, I have to say that, um, just the idea that he was uh, a drummer <laughs> and the drummer in the band, you know, there's a few exceptions, but isn't always like responsible for that much creativity. And it was kind of like, you know, he sort of threw down and just was like, I can do a lot. I can, I can, I can write, I can think about all these, you know, very, very complex and, and philosophically challenging topics. I can synthesize them into a great lyric and I can play the hell out of the drums all over it. You know what I mean? And um, that, that is inspiring, I think, for any musician to think that, hey, maybe uh, there are no limits. I don't have to limit myself to being one role. I'm the lead singer. I'm the guitar player. I'm just, you know, I'm just the songwriter. I can, I can sort of do a bunch of things because cause Neil did it. And so uh, just the quiet work ethic that he had and the way in which he went about his artistry was inspiring for me. And to know he's Canadian, I was just proud as, as anything to think that he just grew up like a 45 minutes from my house, you know? So. so I was reading that special issue of, um, I think modern drummer magazine where they had all of the interviews they had done with Neil over the years. 
And he said something, and this this isn't verbatim, but he said something like, there comes a time in every artist's life where you have to start playing like yourself and not like your heroes. So how do you balance that, you know, when you're writing music thinking, well, maybe this sounds too much like my influences and, and not enough like me? Yeah, I think that is something that every artist has to grapple with in some way. It really helps, I think, to have diverse influences, right? I remember reading somebody's interviewing John Schofield about, you know, why does he sound like John Schofield? It would make him sound so unique every time you hear his playing. It's like a thumbprint. It's him. And he's like, well, most guitar players lift other guitar players. He says, I'm not such a fool. I, I, you know, I lift piano players and sax players and everything else. And that's, those are the ideas I'm trying to get out of my instrument. And so not unlike that, although not to as virtuosic a degree, I would say I have taken and synthesized a bunch of different um, genres and put them together into this gumbo that, that kind of is my music which is probably the reason why I've never been successful on the radio or in any kind of mass marketed sort of ways, because I've been fairly determined to be uh, a bit eclectic and, uh, mm-hmm. and to have those and to, and to trust my audience that they can handle and they can pull apart the threads of music that have gone to make my music what it is. And they can figure that out. They don't need their handheld, they don't need to be presented in a simplistic fashion to them. They can deal with the fact that a, a concert of mine might consist of 16 very different songs, you know, and uh, that it all hangs together because it's one guy delivering it all through six strings and a voice, you know. So it's um, there's common denominators, but it's not always stylistic ones. <laughs> the thing I love about your Rush covers, Jacob, is they are uniquely you. And what we mm. thought we'd do is play a little bit of each each of these songs and then talk about it. Yeah. So why don't we start with your cover of Subdivisions? All right. Sprawling on the fringes of the city in geometric order An insulated border In between the bright lights and the far unlit unknown Seems so one-sided, opinions are provided The future's pre-decided The tight stand subdivided In the mass production zone Nowhere is the dreamer or the misfit song In the high school halls, in the shopping malls, conform or be cast out. In the basement bars, in the backs of cars, be cool or be cast out. Any escape might help to soothe the unattractive truth. For the suburbs have no charms to soothe the restless dreams of.
So how did this come about, Jacob? Did you cover the song first or did you do the rooftop video first? I, I covered the song. I, so I went to see them on their R30 tour. My brother-in-law knows them and got me in backstage and got me into the front row. And I'd never imagined that I'd be able to go to a Rush concert this way. But uh, it put me in a unique place. I was no distractions. It was just me and a big view of the stage that filled my entire peripheral vision and kind of overwhelmed my senses for a couple of hours. And uh, at the end of it, I was left with a lasting impression that, man, these guys have got some great songs, you know, and if it's a great song, you should be able to go home and play it on your acoustic guitar. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know, it's as, as someone once said, it's like making a, you know, homemade Sprite, you know, it's not, they say it's just <laughs> lemon and lime, but there's more to it than that. <laughs> so uh, to, to make a rush cover work, you've got to actually, Gotta put some time in. So I think I might, I think I put in over a year <laughs> on wow. arranging that song. Oh, off and on. I, but my my wife would overhear me. She's like, "Are you still working on that tune?" I'm like, "Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out how to make it work uh, so that because it's in two different keys, you know, it needs to have some open strings so I can kind of beat away on the guitar and be rhythmic with it, and uh, things will kind of sing guitaristically. And um, so I just would work and work and work on this thing. I tried out live a few times, finally got an arrangement that I liked. And I thought what it really needs is a video. And so we went up on the rooftop in 2008, September 11th, 2008. And, uh, I went on the rooftop of the staircase theater in Hamilton and, uh, kind of asked for forgiveness, not permission. And kind of went up there and just basically played it three times, uh, before the sun kind of went down. <laughs> so the time we had was just, and, but I've been playing it so much that I basically played it three times all in the same exact metronomic marking. So it was all in the same beats per minute, which gave us some flexibility later to be able to edit together a nice video and uh, an audio and stuff. And it was, it was a moment in time, you know, it's, it's like uh, when I look back at that video, yeah, it's, I'm probably wearing something goofy, but it's like the, uh, the, the music, it sort of captured something about the spirit of the song, which was what I, my, that was my intention was that it would illustrate, you know, this is kind of what this song's about. Sometimes we forget what songs are about when they're big, iconic rock band uh, productions. It's like the, <laughs> it's hard to pull out the meaning sometimes of the song because it's this big anthem, you know, and, and, and Neil Peart actually said that to me when I, when I talked to him, he said, you know, you, we've always played the song like we play it, but you played it the way I heard it. Wow. That was interesting to hear. That's amazing. Because he wrote the words, right? And he's like, so he always imagined it would be kind of a singer songwriter type of thing. But he's like, we're rushed. So we got to kind of, <laughs> we got to play to, to arenas. I'm going to hit the back of the hall, right? So that was interesting. I was on, it, it validated the fact that I think I was on the right track with the approach, you know? I mean, I certainly couldn't bring more than what I did to bear on it as a solo artist. It was, I was approximating, I was hinting at all of the parts, you know, with what I was playing on the guitar and what I was looping and stuff. But it was just a, a, a reduction of what those guys do as a trio, which is massive, you know. So one of the things I really, really like about your version of Subdivisions is how you preserve Rush's DNA and then, and then insert your own. I mean, I, I, what Neil said is right. Your version really keys in on the loneliness and feels more melancholy in places. So when you approach a song like this, are you thinking about the song itself? Are you thinking about changing the music and then 
changing the the melody of the lyrics or are you just trying to bring something brand new altogether? Yeah, I have a little less fealty to the music than uh, because I don't I don't think you can favorably compare if you try to get too close to the original musical statement. I think basically Rush is going to beat you every time, you know. So if you can do something that takes it out of that comparison land and puts it into like, well, you have to accept this thing on its own merits now because it's different. I think that's where I have a chance, you know, to shine a little bit maybe. But what you said about the song having this melancholic vibe, yes. I mean, I didn't, I didn't uh, create that from nothing. That was in the DNA of the song. That was communicated to me by the original master of subdivisions. All I did was take it and peel back all of the raucous layers of production and lay bare the, um, the vocals so that you can really key in on, and even just someone pronouncing things a little differently sometimes, just somebody just saying the same words, but in a different, someone else's voice. Somehow it brings out a different thing from the song. You know what I mean? It's almost, that can make it a new statement. And I enjoy that when people do that. I enjoy when someone else, someone who can really sing, sings like a Tom Waits song. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I'm like, oh, okay. That's a different song. You know what I mean? <laughs> or like, you know, some, or a Leonard Cohen song or something. You're just like, okay, that's, uh, I didn't hear that song that way before. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that's what's happening here. I get Lee has a very distinctive and amazing voice, which, you know, doesn't need, um, you know, my thumbs up. It's, it's, it's got, you know, there's, there's millions of fans out there who love the way that he sings, but when you do it completely differently, then you, um, yeah, you automatically kind of set yourself apart and make, make people hear the song in a new way. That was kind of my gift to myself, you know, just mm-hmm. in a way, just playing it. That's the initial reward actually. And when I think about it, <laughs> when I'm arranging these songs and I play it and, and I kind of hear it back, I go like, Oh, I'm hearing the song in a new way. And that kind of excites me as a fan. And then I think if I can nail that and if I can successfully accomplish that, there are fans out there that will feel the same way. So in 2010, Jacob, Rush's Subdivisions was inducted into the Canadian Songwriters Hall of Fame. And Rush asked you to perform at the ceremony. How did that come about, Jacob? Um, I got a phone call um, and an email. Well, first it was an email from the guys in the band who saw the video and said, hey, we look, we've seen the video. Great job. Way to go. Um, which I was like, okay, I can die now. Yeah, really. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's all I needed. Um, but then about, uh, you know, nine months later, I got a phone, I got a phone call and email from their management office and they said, Hey, would you consider coming and playing subdivisions at the, you know, songwriters hall of fame thing? And I didn't realize then that they were kind of putting their thumb on the scale. They were kind of, it's not their show. They mm-hmm. were just being inducted, <laughs> but they were kind of saying like, this is kind of who we'd like if we had our druthers to do, you know, the, um, the performance. So I played at the press conference for the event, which was, I think in some ways was a bit of a audition for the show itself. Mm-hmm. If that went okay, <laughs> if I wasn't a complete hack, you know, then they would consider me for the, uh, for the show. And so the producers were there and they were like, yeah, no, I can see this, this, this works. So yeah, then I had to go ahead, but I didn't know until then, which was kind of late February that a month later I'd be, I'd be on the show. So yeah, it's just kind of practice your face off. And uh, there's a whole story around that night. That's pretty, pretty amazing, pretty amazing. So there's a story. Tell us please. (laughs) Well, I just, you know, getting to play for your heroes is is daunting. Right. And so um, they had me come, you know, 10 hours before I was supposed to kind of walk on stage and do my sound check and 
And then you're just kind of walking the boards backstage <laughs> waiting to go on. You don't want to go anywhere in case you can't get back or whatever. So you're just kind of just hanging out, doing your thing. And I basically wrote down on a piece of paper because I just, I didn't want to mess this up. Wrote down on a piece of paper every thing that I was going to do in the song. Just kind of, and just visualized it because I couldn't mm-hmm. have access to all my gear to practice the song. So I would just kind of walk around in my mind trying to really strengthen my mental game for, for going out there. Because I also found out that day that they weren't going to let me set up behind a curtain. They were going to make me set up in less than four minutes wow. <laughs> uh, in between things, you know. So I was going to have to basically hire every, you know, teamster in the place and uh, give them each a piece of gear to bring out on stage and spike it into place and then set the whole thing up and then just pray that I had signal when they said, and now Jacob Moon, you know, here he is to play his little songs. I'm like, oh boy. And I just remember strumming that first chord and then I left my body, you know, Mm. and then I kind of was floating above myself, watching myself, which is the only time this really happened, but I watching myself play and, you know, looking out at the audience and seeing there's the guys from Rush up in the box seats on the on the left hand side and you know there's ron sexsmith there's all these different you know uh, canadian music luminaries out in the audience and um and just kind of going on autopilot about everything that i had ever practiced and it was this moment where i thought you know what because <laughs> there's doubt right that seeps into mm-hmm. your mind as a as a unheard of you know singer songwriter from hamilton ontario playing for this group i thought you know this this could be kind of a daunting moment uh what am i going to do to counteract that and it came to me just in time, just before I went on, uh, I, I, I thought, you know what? There's only one person that could get to do this, <laughs> right? There's only one guy that knows this song this way. That's me. Yeah. I'm that guy. So I just stood in my, in my shoes and did it. And it was, it's, it was actually a life lesson that I carry with me to this day. That every time I go on stage, I try to remind myself of that. It's like, you are the only one who can do this music this way, whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm with my originals or my particular take on covers, I have to do it. It's nobody else that they can get. I'm, 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 the, I'm the only choice. So, so I got in there and then I remember strumming the last chord and then playing my little flourish at the end and looking up and everyone was on their feet. Wow. And I got chills from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. And it was the, definitely the high water mark, you know, of my career, you know, <laughs> that, that thus far. And uh, just walked off stage on a cloud and then afterwards got to meet the guys backstage, had that conversation that I, that I mm-hmm. shared with you earlier about Neil talking to me about subdivisions, you know, took a picture with the guys, got Neil to say subdivisions into my voice recorder. <laughs> so that now every time I play that song, uh, it's his voice that people are hearing, wow. which is pretty wild. I mean, I didn't know the poignancy that that would have until he passed last, last year that um, now when you hear that voice, it's chilling, you know, it's um, yeah, it's uh, it sends, it sends a little something through you when you hear it. So, um, so that was the story behind that night. It was a special night. Well, that's a great story. Amazing. Really amazing. Why don't we check out another track? This is from your album fascination and it's your cover of limelight. Living on a lighted stage Approaches the only
those who wish to see So different from Rush's version. Tell us about putting this one together. Yeah, it, it was um, me thinking like, what are some arrangement moves I can make that will that will kind of change this from something that is um, because whenever you hear, I don't know if you've ever heard the Magna Carta, you know, compilations of like you know um, Rush covers, you know, by today's metal greats, you know, yes, I mean? yes. it's like Tony Iommi and. Uh, <laughs> Steve Lukather and Billy Sheehan play Rush's classics, you know, whatever. It's like, it's always kind of, they're all, you know, there might be slight variations, but they're kind of just doing the original arrangement. Like they don't feel the freedom to mess with it. Mm -hmm. I get that because they're big stars, you know, but I have no such problem. (laughs) You know what I mean? (laughs) There's so many people who don't know and don't care who I am that it's actually takes the pressure off. And now it's just like, now what would you do? if you felt no uh, obligation to the source material or to the original artist um, and to have that a certain sense of healthy, as Pat Metheny calls it, a healthy dose of disrespect, you Mm -hmm. know, which is not in the pejorative sense, but in the sense that I hear the original song, I hear that, but I am going to do my thing with it. You know what I mean? I'm going to kind of mess with it, you know, and, and have some fun with it. So me kind of putting in that solo section with a different, time signature and a different kind of chord progression it's because i don't really think that their um their their solo breaks are sacrosanct i don't think that you have to do them that way Mm -hmm. you know what i mean it's a solo break it's a chance for alex to express himself on the guitar backed up by his band well when it comes to that part of the song i'm going to play a solo that is my solo backed up my by my band and i'm going to tell them what to play Unless it's such a, like, it's Sultan's a swing or something like that. You know what I mean? I don't know if you're going to dick with that too much. You know what I mean? But, but if it's, because they do tend to kind of write a new section sometimes for their solo sections, or they just kind of take it in a different direction, I think that's my free pass to, to mess with that. And the chorus, instead of going up, you know what I mean, and getting more anthemic, um, taking it back and bringing it into a, a bit of a reflective moment you know what i mean because it's to me there's some reflective notes about the the lyrics the way that they unfold it's it's kind of neil neil peart kind of taking stock of what it is to be famous 
you know? And in a way, I'm sort of taking stock of what it might mean to be famous. You know what I mean? <laughs> Not being famous myself, but like kind of looking at, it, looking at it from that perspective. You know what I mean? And I thought about doing a video for this, you know, back when we released it. I just never got around to doing it, of it being all about kind of, you know, from the perspective of the YouTube star who's kind of creating all of this great stuff from his bedroom and pictures this worldwide audience, you know, and all these cheering fans, but dolly back and you see that it's just him in his, <laughs> in his dingy bedroom. You know what I mean? Cool. <laughs> Singing into a, into a webcam kind of thing. You know what I mean? And that's what fame has kind of become now. Right. So it's a bit of a reflection on that, you know, and, and that's, I tried to put that into musical terms and also tried to bring in a real band, a real trio, the David Barrett trio uh, who have, since disbanded, but at that, at that time, it were a working kind of instrumental progressive rock band with strong, strong Rush influences and connections to the point where Alex produced some of their music, right? So I thought that was a good nod to um, the uh, trio sensibility of Rush, you know, bringing that, kind of importing that from, from the David Barrett trio. And uh, they definitely made that sound cohesive in a way that three separate session players might not have. Can we talk about arrangement for a second? Um, not being a musician, me, I mean, how does one go about rearranging a song? Do you have to forget the song entirely or do you have to build on the song? Yeah, you have to not, I think you have to kind of go on your memory of the song and not be so, uh, and be careful not to listen to it not too much when you're working on your arrangement of it you might make reference to, you know, maybe tabs online to kind of get the original harmony straight. So you can see what you're either going to redo or you're going to deviate from. But um, yeah, I kind of tend to work on songs that I, I pull up the lyric sheet that I will look at, mm -hmm. but the original master, I don't want really have anything to do with that. Uh, I don't want to be drawn into those, the magnetic pull that, that they, they might exert on my um, creativity at the time. So, cause it is, it's powerful. The, the, the musicians are parrots. That's why we can do accents you know, and know, <laughs> and kind of impersonate people is because we hear things, we play back, you know, it's just, we're just kind of a little playback machine. So um, if you're going to arrange something, I, I do think you have to ignore and, and like I say, have that healthy dose of disrespect to just go like, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of take it in the direction I want to take it. I'm going to imagine all possible worlds for this harmonically and rhythmically and arrangement wise, where the big pieces of the song go, you know, cut out bars in places that they don't need to be there and uh, maybe add bars in for emphasis, you know, but again, you just know it when you hear it, when you play it back, you're like, yeah, that makes me feel something or that's distracting. And uh, you, it, it went through some, some various incarnations, you know, before it got there. But I basically wrote the bass part and the guy from the David Barrett trio played it, you know, off the page with his own style, but he basically played those notes, you know, so. And the drummer, I basically had to work with him. <laughs> he cursed my name <laughs> for a long time after that. But that section where, where I'm taking the solo and he's playing in 6-4, a particular groove in 6-4 that's not exactly a 6-4 groove. It messed with his head a little bit. And so he was kind of... It took him a while to figure out what, because I, I was trying to, I'm, I'm basically sing, drum singing it at him, right? <laughs> like, it goes, boo, to God, to you know, I'm doing all that stuff, right? <laughs> Which drummers do to each other all the time. But, you know, when you have to put that into your hands, into your feet, it's, uh, it's another matter. So, uh, 
they earned their money that, that, <laughs> that week when I made them do that. And the one thing you did get in there is that iconic limelight riff. Yeah. That has to be in there really. Right. I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's right. And then David Barrett was, that was his kind of job to kind of play some of that stuff. And yeah, he did it in his own kind of gnarly way, which I appreciated. Now you mentioned David Barrett and uh, you did another collaboration with him uh, when you did Time Stand Still. Yeah. Let's play a little bit of that. I turn my back to the wind To catch my breath Before I start off again Driven on without a moment to spend To pass an evening with a drink and a friend I let my skin get too thin I'd like to pause No matter what I pretend Like some pilgrim who learns to transcend Learns to live as if each step was the end Not looking back, but I want to look around me now See more of the people and the places that surround me now Freeze this moment a little bit longer Make each sensation a little bit stronger to the sun Close my eyes Let my defenses down All those wounds that I can't get unwound I'll let my past go too fast No time to pause If I could slow it all down Like some captain Who ship on the ground I can wait until the tide comes around Looking back, but I want to look around me now See more of the people and the places that surround me now such a beautiful version, Jacob. Tell us about how this came together. Well, um, this one was, I'm trying to think whose idea this was. Oh, this was David and I. Um, so let me think 2016, 
I was asked to play at the opening of the Lee Lifeson Art Park. Oh, wow. And yeah. And so Getty and Alex were going to be there and they're going to get the key to the city. And it was going to open right in the neighborhood where they grew up kind of thing. What I remember about that day was I had three gigs in one day. And that was the first one <laughs> at like noon or something like that. And um, pouring rain played there, but then immediately looked at the place and thought, this is a great little spot to do a concert. I hope that they do concerts here. I hope they keep putting on music. I mean, this is, it would be a crime against humanity if they didn't do music at the Lee Lifeson Art Park going forward. Uh, well, you know, cut to like a year later, I make that call to the local councilman and say like, are you guys doing music in the park? And he's like, oh, we'd love to, but there's no budget. So we can't, if you want to play there, I guess you can if you get the permits but we won't be able to pay you to do that. Wow. So I'm like, okay, um, <laughs> well, well let's, we have to do it. So yeah, let's, let's make that happen. And so I, I called up David and I was like, would you play a set before me and then play a few songs with me? And um, so we, um, we put the permits together. We did a crowdfunding campaign. Rush fans came out of the woodwork in Phoenix, Arizona and Amarillo, Texas and all these different places. And just kind of said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we're not even going to be at the show, but here's some money to make it happen because we believe in the idea of Rush songs being played at the Rush bar. And uh, then it came, of course, to me to kind of go like, what Rush songs are we going to play? Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, I know a couple, you know, but wouldn't it be cool to do some of the ones that are real songs, the real songwriter songs, you know, like Time Stand Still is one of those ones. And so, uh, so we kind of tackled it. And I think David was the first to kind of, give me a guitar track on it basically. And so he kind of played his interpretation of it on acoustic guitar. And then I kind of worked off of that and um, decided what I would play on my guitar and how I would sing it. But it's not unlike the arrangement. It's just a, it's, it's, it's a, again, it's reduction to its kind of kernel, you know, uh, key, key parts. And that, that kind of really lays that lyric bare. You know, when you do that, you just have a couple of acoustic guitars and the vocal, and then you get the full resonance and meaning of those lyrics. And they've only gotten more resonant since Neil's passing, for sure. You know, I've been to Lee Lifeson Art Park, Jacob, and it is fantastic. Mm. You are so right. I mean, music has to be played there, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Why don't we talk about New World, man? Let's, let's take a listen to this. He's a rebel and a Signal turning green. It's a restless young romantic who wants to run a big machine. He's got a problem with his poisons, but you know he'll find it pure. He's cleaning up the systems to keep his nature pure. Learning to match the beat of the old world man Learning to catch the heat of the third world man He's got to make his own mistakes And learn to mend the mess he makes He's old enough to know what's right and young not to choose it He's noble enough to win the world But big enough to lose it He's a new world man He's a radio receiver To factories and farms He's a 
writer and arranger and a young boy bearing arms. He's got a problem with his powers, his weapons on patrol. He's got to walk the fine line and keep his self-control. Trying to save the day for the old world man Trying to pave the way for the third world man He's not concerned with yesterday He knows cost to change is here today He's noble enough to know what's right to be not to choose it He's wise enough to win the world But fool enough to lose it He's a new I love this one Just you and an acoustic guitar Yeah, well me and uh, David had been working on this one together And there's a version of this That no one's really heard That features whole bunch more David Barrett guitars and there's like hand claps and there's kind of a, you know, some other stuff happening and uh, with arranging songs, <laughs> it's funny. It gets to a point where if you exceed the bounds of the solo presentation at some point, it, there's an unmistakable, uh, you know, magnetic pull towards doing a full band arrangement, you mm -hmm. know? And you kind of cross a certain meridian you, and now you've got to do, <laughs> you've got to kind of do it all. And you, and once you do that, now you're starting to get into comparison land between you and the uh, full band original that Rush kind of produced. And um, you've got to justify more of your choices. And so when you kind of peel it back to acoustic, which is what I chose to do ultimately, and I think that was probably disappointing for, for David because, you know, he put some work into that and we had Terry, Terry Brown mix it. But at the end of the day, I mean, everybody did a great job, but at the end of the day, I just kind of looked at it and thought like, I don't know, I don't feel as strongly about this as I would if it was just a solo presentation, you know what I mean? And so there's a version of that that has gone out to our fans and stuff, but ultimately the one that was released with the video just felt like it, it's needed less explanation if it was just me doing an acoustic guitar. So, uh, how did you choose a song like New World Man? I mean, it's played on the radio a little bit, so it's some kind of, you know, people know it, but it's an odd choice and kind of an odd song, right? It's, yeah, interesting. It is, um, as, a, as a song, I think it's, its strengths are its uh, recognizability, its melodic strength is right there. I like where it goes harmonically. I like what it's talking about. You know, there's a lot of um, politicians that could be describing, right? There's a lot of movers and shakers in the business world that it could be describing, you know? And a lot of things that, that um, are being grappled with in the lyric are things we're still grappling with 40 years later, right? So, yeah, if I'm, if I'm interpreting it correctly, and I think everyone's going to have their own interpretation of it, but certainly all of the raw material is there in the lyric if you want to pull it out. And so um, I just instantly identified with it and with the kind of slightly police vibe that it kind of gives off as well. You know what I mean? It's kind of, it's got that up-tempo rock and just, I think they were all, they're all fans of the police, you know? And so I think you, it's unmistakable that that would come out at some point in their, um, in their presentation. So 
that feels like a policey sort of song. So I thought, I don't know, I, I gravitated towards it. Also, I think like if I'm going to play a song and it's going to get, you know, I'm just going to go anywhere, it's, it had better be a song that has some uh, cultural uh, resonance already. And, and, and I'm not just like pulling some B-side, <laughs> you know, out of the, out of obscurity to, to play, to narrow cast it to rush bands. I, I would like to reach as wide an audience as I possibly can. And I think because that was a radio hit in a way, and it's not overplayed either. Like it's not right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, it's, it deserves another airing. It deserves another look, you know? So I think that's, that's kind of where I was going with that one. So on the 40th anniversary edition of 2112, you did a version of something for nothing. Let's, let's take a listen to that. Waiting for the winds of change to sweep the clouds away. Waiting for the rainbow's end to cast its gold your way. Countless ways you pass the day. Did Rush commission you to do this, Jacob, or did this version of the song exist before the 40th anniversary came out? No, they, um, it wasn't, I don't know that it was, certainly I didn't speak to anybody in Rush about it. I spoke to um, somebody at uh, SRO Anthem about it, and they were the ones, I think, following the, essentially the the, the end of, of, of Rush's you know, new music career, as it were, they knew that they were going to want to keep putting out stuff because people buy Rush records, right? And so uh, they're the top top three selling act of, of all time, right? They're right up there, you know, and, and with, with the Beatles and the Stones because they're so collectible. They have so many different variants of their live and, and, uh, and recorded work. So um, it made sense for them to go back into the archives and pull some stuff out and to get a bunch of people like the Foo Fighters and Allison Chains and Stephen Wilson to kind of cover songs from this record. 
And um, that was a pattern now that they followed for the last couple of repackaging reissues that they've done. But that was the first one of its kind in a way. And um, I remember I just got a call from, from Andy and he just kind of said like, all right, so uh, can you do something for nothing? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And then um, I got off the phone. I'm like, crap. How does that want to go again? <laughs> like I say, I tracked with their hits. You know what I'm saying? So I didn't, right. I didn't go as deep as some people went. Right. So that one didn't, it, it, it I kind of missed on it. So um, I went back and listened to it and I was kind of like, Oh boy. All right. This is good. And it's probably my, was my greatest challenge in a way was to cover that song. And you can sort of see, you know, in some of the reaction to it, that it's maybe the most polarizing of the covers that I've done in a way, because not everyone sort of agrees with the direction that I took it, which was a bit of a, a bit of a loose sort of almost Chris Cornell sort of style of bluesy rock, a little more mid tempo than, than kind of like frenetic and like the warlock vocals and the, you know, (laughs) the sort of original approach, right. It's, it was a little more like, okay, let's see if we can kind of take a, a one cool remove from the that ecstatic energy of the original and uh, see what that brings when we kind of have a, a really sober reading of those lyrics, you know, and what they mean for personal responsibility and approaching the, you know, uh, goal of fame and success and um, work ethic and all that stuff and uh, see if we can get that across in a different way. And yeah, it was a fun chance to kind of ta- take a whack at a new guitar solo and kind of compose it a little bit. And so it was one of those guitar solos where I just kind of, I sort of, yeah, wrote it out ahead of time and then just executed it, you know, and um, got some fellow players to kind of, they didn't know what they were playing it for. They were like, oh, there's a rush song. Cool. You know, they didn't know it was going to show up on the, 20, on the uh, 2112 reissue. And then they're like, oh, cool. This is so much fun. So it was kind of fun to see that because uh, I didn't really know if it would make the cut, to be honest. I thought, well, we'll submit it. We'll see what happens. But I'm sure they have lots of people submitting stuff and they're going to just pick the best stuff. So when I got the call, that it was, no, they're going to go master it at Abbey Road and everything wow. else. So I'm like, okay, all right. But um, when I listen back to it, it still stands up to me. I still feel the same way about it. You know, I still feel a conviction that that's the direction that I could do it in. There are other directions. Like if you have a kind of a Ronnie James Dio voice or something, you know, you can kind of pull it in some other. But I just, that's, that's my version of it. I like it. It's fun. You know, I wanted to ask uh, about the approach to the vocals because Steve and I were talking about covers in general. And a lot of singers, you know, think they have to sound like getty they try to hit those notes and i don't know i guess it's they think they need to sound like like getty but you're singing it like like you and i assume it has a lot to do with the approach and the arrangement that we've talked about but in your mind do you have getty in your mind when you're doing these things like he says it this way so i'm gonna say it that way or he enunciates it this way so i'm gonna enunciate it that way does any of that uh, run through your mind um, no, really not at all. No, I, I really, yeah, because Getty's such a different singer than I am. Like he, the way he approaches singing is, um, yeah, it's a bit of a battle cry, you know what I mean? In, in some of the older stuff and he has kind of a warmth and kind of a, a naturalness to his voice in some of the later stuff as well. And so, uh, he's got a real wide range and, um, I kind of just, I gotta, I've got to get the emotional content across in a lyric. 
And I've got to do that in my own voice or it's not going to be like, the, that's where you hear the lie is in the voice, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If, if you can, if you, if somebody's lying to you, you can hear it in, in their voice, in their speaking voice or, or in their singing voice. And so that's the goal is just not to, not to lie, but to kind of, as much as I can sort of uh, empty myself of some of the less necessary stylistic conventions and more just kind of sing the lyric, you know, if I possibly can. And that's, you know, some people are able to do it better than I can, you know, but uh, that's, that's my, that's the way that I, I tend to approach it. Let's talk about one more, Jacob. This is your version of Red Sector A. All that we can do is just survive. All that we can do to help ourselves is stay alive. All that we can do is just survive. All that we can do to help ourselves is stay alive. Ragged lines of ragged grain. Skeletons, they shuffle Shouting guards and smoking guns will cut down the unlucky ones. I clutch the wire fence until my fingers bleed. A wound that will not heal, a heart that cannot feel. Hoping that the horror will recede. Hoping that tomorrow we'll all be free sickness to insanity prayer to profanity days and weeks and months go by don't feel the hunger too weak to cry I hear the sound of gunfire at the prison gate Are the liberators here? Do I hope or do I fear? For my father and my mother it's too late But I must help my brother stand up straight Are we the last ones left alive? left alive Are we the only human beings to survive And this one is so moving, so haunting, just a, a completely different take. Tell us about how this came together, Jacob. Uh, Adrian Berkowitz brought this to my attention. He was doing a project that um, honored the legacy and story of his father who was rescued from a internment camp by his brother and um, so the song had very very personal resonance for the Berkowitz family and he wanted to do a whole production which would have gone on stage in March of this year but as we know that it was not meant to be any event live in late March was not going to happen. So um, he uh, has moved it to sometime next year in hopes of mounting it again. Um, but has put a lot of work into writing and compose and, and arranging songs that would uh, tell a story 
And Red Sector A is part of that narrative storytelling that he's just um, using to kind of get that across. And he called me in to, to sing it, basically. And so um, he played the keyboards. He arranged the pads and um, the sort of the sound effects and stuff. And I produced the video basically using some of the, some of the stuff that he gave me, some of the footage that he gave me, and then adding some new stuff myself and then just kind of interpreted it vocally. And um, yeah, and that's one that maybe Getty's voice is closest to my own delivery in that song, possibly, you know, just, you don't maybe feel it the same way because it's wrapped up in a different, package production wise, but it's still uh, ragged lines of ragged gray. You know what I mean? Just the way he sings that, you know, it's hard to avoid that same, you know, um, that same style in some ways. So, uh, but that's, that's one that, yeah, it is, it's super haunting the way he does it too. And that's, it should be haunting. You know, you think you hear the original, you realize all that hauntingness is it's all, it's all in the lyric. It's all buried there. It's, it's just, but the trappings of 80s production style, you know, right. kind of, uh, they, they just, uh, in some ways, they, they can interfere sometimes with the message of the song. And sometimes that's the, the job of every next generation is to go back and kind of mine the gold of those previous generations that, that their music is, has become so idiomatic to the time, you know, so, so 80s or so 90s or so 70s or whatever it is, and strip that stuff away. And, and just bring us that lyric again and remind us of how great those melodies and those lyrics were, you know? Yeah, I was just amazed when I heard uh, that cover. I mean, the song, like I said, like in the 80s, you know, kind of has like a, like a sci-fi feel to it. But the lyrics are definitely very, very heavy. But the piano, it just kind of grounds the entire song. It's just such a, such a moody version of the song. I think, you know, I don't think it should be played by anyone else any other way. Yeah, it's funny, eh? It's funny. I, I get chills just thinking about the way he did that, too. And, and yeah. I think you've described it very well. So it's, um, yeah, it's nice when we can finally kind of, you know, hit on something that, because um, when you think Rush, when the culture thinks Rush, they have certain attributes and certain maybe caricatures that they throw at that band. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm always just like, but, but listen to this tune, listen to this one. Like this, there's so much great stuff there that uh, you have to kind of extricate from its surroundings. Um, when you do that, it, it stands, it speaks for itself. So, you know, a lot of critics would say that Rush aren't good songwriters, but I disagree completely. I, I think a good song will survive any adaptation into any genre. I mean, if the song is good, I mean, if it has, you know, good bones, you can build anything you want off it. Yeah. I think uh, ultimately what people are talking about when they're saying that is they're, they've, they've sort of um, equated or, or conflated, you know, a classic singer songwriter like Tom Waits or like whatever. I mean, Carol King or James Taylor or something like that, uh, that it's just, you know, it's the, it's the lyric, it's the melody, it's the accompaniment uh, of one instrument. And that's, the measure of a great song is if it can be great in that small of a, and I, that's, that's my whole goal is to try to see if I can put that to the test with rush and time after time, as you, as we, as we're hearing, we can still get a tremendous amount of enjoyment and maybe even unpeel a few layers of the song when you do that. 
So the critics have been proven wrong on that one. But their point about Rush not proving that, <laughs> you know, is still debatable, right? So because Rush, you know, is like I say, it's they're they're a creature of their uh, of their times in some ways. So the '70s Rush has a sound, the '80s Rush has a sound, the '90s Rush has a sound. The more the last twenty years have produced, you know. Uh, another sound again, you know, and those production choices have kind of, in some ways with the culture have kind of put them in this ghetto of progressive rock or hard rock or something. And as soon as you do that, as soon as you say progressive rock or hard rock, now we're not talking about songwriting anymore. (laughs) It's not fair, right? It's not fair. And we know better, but uh, like I say, the culture has a different um, set of criteria and rules that they play by. I think sometimes. We're a Rush podcast, Jacob, so we've been focusing on your Rush covers, but you've got tons of other amazing music. Why don't you tell us what you're working on now? What do you got in the hopper? Right now, I am just in the middle of, I'm just finishing off a instrumental record that I'm doing with a friend of mine, um, and we're kind of just calling ourselves Floodplain, and so you can hear our first couple of songs on Spotify if you search that up. And, um, it's been a crazy year, right? So I think people need music to do certain things for them now. And so there's a, as an, as musicians, as artists, we have something to offer them, you know, which is solace, which is, um, a place of retreat from their anxieties, their worries, all those things. And this instrumental kind of chilled out music to read by music to think by music to dream by you know is something that uh, i'd never really contemplated before this year but it feels like this is the right time to do that and um, simultaneous with that i'm also working on a full-length original project Um, i'm in the demo stage of all those songs and i also am determined to release a collection of those rush songs that we've talked about today oh wow cool yeah, and just make sure that I can do that in a way that doesn't step on anybody's toes over at SRO Anthem. They've been kind of, they've sworn off kind of talking about rights for anything over the last year because of Neil's passing. They didn't want to appear to be predatory in any way or, um, you know, mercenary about the the rights of Rush songs and stuff. So they just haven't been answering calls about that. But um, I'm hopeful that, you know, we can work that out and then I can release that. And I mean, I'd love to do an acoustic collection of Genesis covers, of Peter Gabriel covers, of oh, wow. uh, Marillion covers. You know, these are all bands that I also feel passionately about, and they have fan bases that are rabid and will kind of uh, find whatever stuff comes out by uh, that, that features their favorite artists. So i i want to I want to definitely do that stuff as well. So it'll be kind of be a busy year recording wise. There's a lot of stuff that's just ready to go. All it needs is a few weeks in the recording studio, and it can all be. They can all be uh, captured. So Jacob, what's the best way for us to purchase your music? You mentioned you can hear it on Spotify, but I would imagine if we go to jacobmoon.com, that's the place to get your music, right? Yeah, go to jacobmoon.com. Yeah, go there and, and check out my live streams. I do live streams uh, every week, like Thursday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I do live streams. So uh, yeah, you can check me out that way. And that's a way to kind of just see what I'm doing right up to the moment. What's, what's going on right now. And if you want to buy music, if you're one of those pe- crazy people who still likes to buy physical music, I love you, first of all, um, <laughs> whoever you are. And, uh, <laughs> and I'd be happy to sell you my music on jacobmuser.com. Yeah, for sure. Jacob, thanks so much for joining us on the Rush Fancast. This has been great. We really appreciate it. Such a pleasure. Thanks for uh, for listening and for being passionate about Rush. And I join you in that. And uh, let's keep their uh, music alive.
Thanks so much, Jacob. Thanks, man. So, Jar, how fantastic was that? I say this after every interview, but that was amazing. You do. Yeah, I, yeah, I love talking to artists. I just do. I love to know what, what, what they're thinking when they're writing songs or doing covers. Or I just love hearing all the stories. And I can't wait for the Rush Covers album to come out. How great is that going to be? That means he's going to have those six songs that we just played, plus maybe four more. Maybe, yeah. We should give him some suggestions. You got any suggestions that he could? You know, I was thinking of that when we were talking to him, and I said, you know what? That probably wouldn't be cool for us to make suggestions. <laughs> Let's do it now, though. <laughs> yeah, well, he'll listen now, and, and now, we'll, now we'll make some suggestions. Um, let's think. Hmm, what, what would I want him to do? That's a good question. I don't know. We, we were trying to convince Stephen Droves from the Flaming Lips to <laughs> cover the Fountain of Lemneth. That would be interesting. I don't know if you could do that with an acoustic guitar, though. No, no. I'm just saying that, you know, we just have to try to convince Jacob to do, I don't even what know. What about Bastille Day? Would that be crazy? See, I have no idea. With someone else, you know, if you say, hey, how about doing a cover of Bastille Day? Someone would do a cover of Bastille Day, and it would sound like Bastille Day. I have no idea how <laughs> Jacob would approach Bastille Day. Well, the thing is... Rush asked him to do something for nothing, and that's not a song right. you could picture Jacob Moon doing, but he did a fantastic job. That's what I'm talking about, man. What, what Rush song would be off the table? Probably The Fountain of Lameth. <laughs> Maybe. Only, only because it's, it's going to be taken by the lips. <laughs> well, only because it's 17 minutes long, you know? Hemispheres, maybe? Maybe. Um, God, I don't even... How about Double should, Agent? Should he do that one? We, sh- we should have <laughs> talked about this before we started recording, Steve. <laughs> oh, come on. It's more fun this way. Um, I don't know. Big money? Off the table or, or one he could do? One he could do. I think he could do anything. Look, he's talented enough where I think he could take any Rush song and turn it into his own and make it fantastic. Maybe uh, Faithless. Oh, that would be great. Yeah, that would be really good. But I think he'd have to relate to the lyrics. So if he's not faithless, I don't think that's a good song for him to do. True. We didn't ask him that question. Only Jacob can answer that question. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Rush Fancast. Instagram, we are at The Rushcast. Email Jerry. Let him know what you thought of our interview with Jacob Moon at TheRushcast at gmail.com. The bass intro and outro, as always, done by Lex. He's fantastic. And Jerry, I hope you have a quote for me. Of course. I have a quote for you, Steve. But I was thinking, I was having a hard time coming up with one because I wanted to do something from one of the songs he did. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to do a quote from Something for Nothing. Nice. You don't get something for nothing. You don't get freedom for free. You won't get wise with the sleeps in your eyes, no matter what your dreams might be. So true. So true. So true. Take it easy, Jar. See you later. Mm-hmm.